Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Christian Schultz, Citigroup Global Director of European Research. He joins us uh, from London. Christian, thanks very much for being with us. All right, let's honor Mr. Farrell here and begin with what's (laughs) going on in Spain. Uh, Is this, first of all, unexpected? And what do you believe this no-confidence vote will lead to? Well, uh, we had some good news out of Spain in the middle of the week because the long-delayed budget would, was passed um, because of the Catalonia issues uh, last year that had been postponed uh, and that had passed. So that was actually good news. Uh, and now we get this um, corruption scandal coming to a head, uh, not just the treasurer apparently, but also the party, the, the Conservative Party as a whole uh, being uh, in the dock. And uh, now what looks like a no-confidence vote um, and perhaps new elections. Now, this is all um, sort of unfolding as we as we speak, I guess. So uh, we can't draw any firm conclusions yet. But I think the general story about Spain is uh, here's an economy which has bounced back very nicely from uh, two crises. Um, unemployment has come down a lot. The yeah. economy is growing fast. Um, the economy, the, the government so far has been doing the right things, which is why people would be worried if it's um, elected out of office. The good news is that uh, Spain, unlike other countries, especially Italy, doesn't really have any Eurosceptic parties. So uh, whatever combination of coalition we get uh, next in Spain, I think the worry that it would dramatically change the direction of the economy, um, I think, is is quite low. Uh, we have to say that with caution, but I yeah. think it's quite low. As someone messaged me this morning, there's a big difference between pro-European populism and anti-European populism um, within Spain and within Italy. Um, then we've got the price. What's in the price? There is a 100 basis point spread. It's coming in a little bit now, about 97 basis points between the Italian and Spanish 10-year does a 1% difference, a 100 basis point difference, to be more precise, between Italian and Spanish 10-year debt make sense to you based on politics and economics, Christian? Well, I think you know Spanish um, debt ratios are much lower than Sp- than Italy's. Uh, potential growth is much higher than in uh, than in Italy. So I think there's plenty of reasons, and politics are more stable than in Italy. So I think there's plenty of reasons to believe that uh, Spain has become something like a semi-core eurozone country, yeah. um, much closer to say Germany than than to the real periphery like Italy and in Greece. And I think that's uh, that's justified. But in the short term, you know, uncertainty can rebound. We've seen it last year with the. Uh, Catalonia referendum, we may now see some uncertainty around potential uh, elections. But I think the general story is still the same. Uh, I'm more confident in in the Spanish outlook than in the Italian. Well, Christian, I I just wonder what it means for markets, because the lesson of the last several years in Europe since the European debt crisis is to fade political risk. That's how you made money. You faded the uh, Catalonia risk last year. You fade the risk in, in France last year. Why is the situation in Italy any different? Oh, it may not be. I think there's plenty of sort of scenarios of where we can go from here uh, with Italy. There is the scenario that we've seen quite play out quite a few times now uh, recently, where um, an event looks like a big risk, but then people torn down the rhetoric, don't take the most aggressive decision they could be taking. So in the Italian context, that would mean a relatively smooth summit, um, EU summit at the end of June, um, perhaps uh, you know putting all these fiscal easing pledges a bit on the back burner. And very quickly, you'd be back to a scenario where Italy isn't 
price has a much bigger risk than it was before this uh, government would be formed. But there's also, of course, the risk of a very confrontational uh, June summit um, of the uh, government very quickly moving to reverse the pension reforms and uh, do all these tax cuts, becoming fiscally unsustainable, um, the ECB becoming involved in all of this, um, the 2015 Greece scenario, if you like, um, which, of course, with Italy uh, instead of Greece, would be a much bigger risk than it was perhaps in 2015. But at the same time, the ECB is cutting back on its stimulus program. This has got to be countervailing to what's going on in Italy. Yes, but they're only cutting back on the net purchases, um, so the 30 billion per month that they're buying. Uh, they have, of course, already bought about 2.5 trillion. So the monthly extra purchases are becoming less and less important, and more and more important is the the stock of uh, bonds they have already bought in which they're continuing to reinvest. So I don't think that the ECB ending net purchases at the end of the year is necessarily such a big negative for for these peripheral markets. Christian Schultz, always great to catch up with you. Citigroup Global Director of European Research, joining us out of London. Well, North Korea said that it was surprised by President Donald Trump's decision to cancel the June 12th summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And uh, now North Korea says it remains willing to meet with the United States at any time. Here to tell us more about the situation is Thomas Byrne. He is the president of the Korea Society, and he is an adjunct professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And uh, I should say that the, Mr. Byrne's education into the world of uh, Korea and the Korean Peninsula goes all the way back to his time in the Peace Corps, in which he uh, served in uh, South Korea. And I'm wondering... Uh, uh, Professor Byrne, if you can just give us a little bit of perspective as to what do you believe is actually going on in North Korea? Yeah, well, my my thinking about North Korea is, um, you know, Kim Jong-un, the, the, the leader of North Korea, uh, surprised everybody in, on January 1st, uh, saying he was willing to engage South Korea, uh, willing to... Uh, prioritize economic development over military prowess. And uh, and that set into motion uh, what we've seen play out uh, with, with summits uh, with Kim Jong-un in China, to with China, his historic one with South Korea, Pan uh at the end of uh, April, and uh, almost one with President Trump. It would have been the first time uh, a sitting president has met a North Korean leader. I think what's going on is that North Korea this is a very dramatic shift strategically. It really hasn't baked in very well that uh, to uh, to give up its uh, military first policy and go to something like economic development. And uh, really, if North Korea is serious about economic development, uh, it really does have to abandon its nuclear weapons program. It has to devote resources, um, and not just uh, money, but also institutional resources to developing an economy, and it won't be able to do that uh, under uh, the sanctions that exist. Do you believe that uh, Kim Jong-un is uh, secure in his position in North Korea? Well, I get, uh, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, he he has been very, uh, very firm, if not ruthless, in, in rooting out opposition uh, reports are there's been, you know, more executions in his short uh, time in office about six years now, I think, uh, than in, under his uh, father's. And 
I think if he was willing to go to Singapore, assuming that was serious, uh, I think he feels pretty pretty secure. He did make two trips to China for the first time. First time he left uh, uh, North Korea since coming to power in the end of uh, 2010. Thomas, are the South Koreans happy that the president has cancelled this summit? I, what I read is that they're 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 disappointed. Uh, South Korean hopes were were very high, and I, you know, uh, the the country has been divided since since 1948. Um, it's been in a state of armistice since, for 65 years after three years of, of a very uh, very devastating war. And uh, they were hoping they could turn the corner and 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 see you know peace and prosperity for the whole peninsula. I think those hopes and aspirations are still in play. I don't think um, they've gone out the window. I think we're in a much better position now, May twenty fifth, yeah. than we were in December twenty fifth last year. So putting things into perspective, I think maybe events moved a bit too quickly. Um, North Korea was not quite sure on 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 how much it could uh, on what the uh, how much it would have to give up to to have this meeting with President uh, Trump and to really embark upon um, a, a program of denuclearization. Thomas, for Wall Street, there's a big question in the last 24 hours. Um, for a while, over the last year, the president has been leaning on China to put the pressure on North Korea. And in many ways, he's tied that effort into the trade policy story as well, willing to back away on trade if the Chinese can put the pressure on the North Koreans to come to the table. What is China's role in all of this now? Well, China has a big role, and it's really hard to figure out. I mean, first of all, I think it's uh, I think it's safe to say that China is in line with the ultimate objective that the U.S. has and also South Korea, the Republic of Korea, and that is um, a complete dismantling of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And that's the so-called Libya model. Um, the Libya model happened to be done very rapidly. Uh, so they're all in favor of that. Uh, China may have a different timetable and want to see more concessions from the U.S. up front than the U.S. is probably willing to give, given the, the disappointing record of 20 years of that type of diplomacy with North Korea and where North Korea is today with nuclear bombs and uh, with, with uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. But I think they both agree on the, on the fundamental strategic objective. It's really on how to get there. Um, so I, I, it's how they work that out. Now, one of the, one of the dynamics of this whole complicated process is that if North Korea were to embark on a genuine uh, program of denuclearization or path of denuclearization, it would probably imply that they would move closer to South Korea, and there'd be some distance between, more distance between North Korea and, and China, and maybe China is uncomfortable about that. Thomas Byrne, uh, previous to your role at the Korea Society, uh, you were with Moody's Investor Services. Uh, you were the director of analysis for the Sovereign Risk Group for Asia Pacific. Uh, what can you tell us about the reaction, perhaps in Japan and other nations in the region? Well, everyone, uh, I think, was very hopeful that th this, uh, this this great geopolitical risk would be contained and eliminated through a process of denuclearization. However, I don't think uh, anyone has given up hope that uh, that outcome could still be achieved. Um, one of the one of the things to understand, though, the biggest deterrent to geopolitical risks in Northeast Asia has been the ROK-U.S. alliance for uh, since since 1953 for 65 years. Um, this has prevented 
uh, an outbreak of uh, a second Korean War. It's been defensive in nature. It hasn't been aggressive to North Korea at all. And uh, and this has enabled uh, South Korea to develop into such a prosperous country uh, that it is today, and also a democratic country. Can North Korea achieve some kind of advance economically without striking a deal with the United States? I don't think so. I think it could... Well, first of all, uh, the, the question is, uh, you know, uh, it's deprived of resources right now. A, a deal with the U.S. would really mean that North Korea has the opportunity to open to the rest of the world. They join the IMF. Now, if North Korea want, is expecting to get help from the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or even the the, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank yeah. in Beijing, they have to join the IMF. However, um, North Korea uh, perhaps can get uh, China could ease or relax some of the sanctions that it has been enforcing. Uh, but China says it will not do that um, until North Korea uh, embarks on denuclearization. Thomas, just so finally, I just want to jump in through, if I possibly I can. More than that. Just to jump in if I possibly think? can, Thomas. Um, the question, I think, just to wrap things up, is whether the North Korean regime is collapsing. A lot of people have made a big deal about the destruction of the nuclear test site. There are some reports that actually it collapsed a long while ago, and that's why the North Korean leader has come to the table. Just how bad are things in North Korea right now? Well, North Korea is a black box. I mean, it probably no one would have advanced notice if the if the regime is collapsing. But I, I think the economy is in trouble. I think it's been in trouble for, for, for some years. If you look at the import figures, it's not importing. The imports are going down even before the sanctions were introduced. The, the new comprehensive sanctions that, if they're continued, will be much have a much greater impact on North Korea's economy than the Iran sanctions had uh, on the Iranian economy. So it's hard to say, but... Um, you know, it's a very repressive government. It, it has kept in power since 1948 through war and through famine. So it's it it has more staying power than any probably any other government any anywhere else in the world. Thomas Byrne, great to catch up with you, sir. Thank you very much for giving us your time. The Korean Society president and Columbia University professor on North Korea, the South, and the relationship with the United States. Really pleased to say that we can now cross over to Bloomberg's Michael McKee, who's standing by with the Dallas Federal Reserve president. Well, thank you very much and good morning to everybody on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. And thank you, Mr. President, for joining. Don't you like to be able to call Mr. President? You can call me Rob. <laughs> Welcome to Texas, Mike. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Uh, fundamentals, I don't think anybody doesn't know your position, but just for the record, yeah. you see growth picking up, unemployment going down, and yeah. uh, two more rate moves this year. Is that, yes, that right? my base case is three for the year. Uh, we should be gradually moving toward neutral. And the other caution that I've repeated various times is while this year's growth will be strong, next year will be somewhat weaker, and by 2020, 2021, we're gonna head back down to potential, which is closer to one and three quarters to 2%. Reason I mention it, that's on my mind when I think about the shape of the Fed funds curve. What would it take to get you to support a fourth move this year? Uh, continued strength in the economy, but more than that, I'd want to see some actions that suggested, to me at least, that sustainable GDP growth was improved. And so that would be things that improve growth in the workforce, 
it would it would show some policy moves that might suggest we're going to improve skill levels of our workforce, education levels. Some of the fundamental drivers it, uh, would need to change for me to be uh, more aggressive. The Open Market Committee in its last statement put symmetrical higher up there. Yeah. With the choice of that word, what are you trying to tell the markets? That inflation may run a little bit above 2% yeah. or that you are going to tolerate it for a while running above 2%? I think it's the, probably the former. It's that inflation may run a little bit above 2% and, and our job is, is to try to keep inflation so that it doesn't persistently run above 2 or persistently below. Now we've been running 7 or 8 years below 2. But in, in the future, we'd, I would tolerate some moves above two, but if I thought it would be persistently staying above two, I'd want to take more policy action. Uh, the forecast you mentioned, in June you have to make a new one for the Open yeah. Market Committee meeting. Tax cuts, trade tariffs, budget deficits, all the things that are going on in the world right now. How confident are you in what you think is going to happen? Well, this is part of the job. You've always got all these variables changing, which makes this job interesting, and, and also, why it's not a static thing, it's a dynamic thing. But the, the tax legislation, as I mentioned, for this year is a positive, but you mentioned debt. Uh, on the flip side, while it's a stimulus now, I think it may create a headwind in the out years because we're gonna need to moderate debt growth. We're already at unsustainably high levels of debt growth. On, on the trade tariff front, I've said consistently, uh, trade is an opportunity for the United States, particularly in North America, and uh, I would be concerned if we don't ultimately get this trade agreement updated and agreed to uh, with Mexico and Canada, because it's an intermediate goods relationship. It helps logistics, supply chains, it adds jobs here, and it makes us more potent in negotiating with China. Well, in your mind, what's the biggest threat or threats to the U.S. economy right now? Still, the, bi the biggest threat are the things that are staring us in the face. Uh, our workforce growth is slowing because we're aging and we're not yet making policy decisions to address that. Uh, our skill levels in the United States are lagging the rest of the world. We rank 25th out of 35 OECD countries, and our skill levels aren't keeping up with disruption. And the last thing is we're, we're very highly leveraged, and we just leveraged up late in the economic cycle, and I'm worried that that's gonna create a headwind for economic growth. It also means in the next downturn, we, don't, we may not have capacity for fiscal policy. Those things are the things that ultimately matter the most and worry me the most. Well, non-financial corporate debt is at a record, speaking of yeah. leverage. Uh, there's a view that could be the trigger for the next real financial crisis. How do you see it? I probably don't see that. Uh, so, yes, corporate debt to GDP is higher, but the financial sector as part of that is, is deleveraged. And what I'm looking for is systemic risk. If a company fails, uh, or defaults, that's not a good thing, but it's not going to pull down or shouldn't pull down the rest of the economy. So corporate debt to GDP is something to watch, but I don't think, I don't, I don't see uh, a red flag on that at this point. Another thing you didn't mention is oil. You're the guy in the oil patch yeah. here for the Fed. Uh, what do you see happening with oil prices and how much of a danger is it to the economy? It's not a danger. Uh, you know, we're in, a, we're in a fragile equilibrium right now, you've heard me say before, and what do I mean by that? We're in relative supply-demand balance globally, but part of that balance is based on OPEC and other oil-producing countries agreeing they're gonna cut 1.8 million barrels a day, and there's some talk that maybe they're gonna revisit that. Uh, having said that, we think for the next three to five years you're gonna see sort of a volatile up and down in oil prices with shale being the incremental supplier to global demand. 
My concern is not the next few years, it's in the out years. We think we'll, we may well likely get into a global undersupply situation because we, as prolific as shale is, it's not going to be enough to keep up with global demand and we're not spending on long life projects. So we, we think there's spike risk to the upside. That would worry me because if we're growing slowly in these out years and then you get an oil increase or a gasoline increase, it's like a tax on consumers. But I think we're in, we're in, a, we're in a fragile equilibrium in pretty good shape for the next few years. There is always the question of when people think recession might be coming. Um, I assume you're of the view that recession, as Fed officials are, that recessions don't die of old age. But there's a feeling in the markets that, right. that, that, that maybe we, uh, we're seeing the yield curve start to tell us something. Well, uh, there's always some not, material, not immaterial probability of recession, as you know. Uh, what I'm worried about is sustainable economic growth. We're going to have recessions. My job is to make sure that in ups and down cycles, you know, we've got maximum sustainable employment and price stability. And what I'm worried about right now is not the short-term cyclical questions, but I'm worried, we're not, are we doing the right things to grow, G, to grow GDP? GDP is made up of growth in the workforce and growth in productivity, and I don't see us making policy steps to address either, and I think both look like they're going to be sluggish in the out years. We just don't notice it as much right now because we've got a very large fiscal stimulus, and up to now the Fed's been accommodative. Are you getting less so? How do we know when you get to the point that uh, we're starting to tighten policy? Well, we're obviously raising the Fed funds rate and moving toward neutral. Neutral's the, 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 the theoretical Fed funds rate where we're no longer accommodative. Uh, I think that level is probably in the neighborhood of two and a half, two and three quarters, which basically a half a percent to three quarters percent of a point real. Uh, we're at 150 to 175 now. So three or four moves, we will be at neutral. Well, you said you would not intentionally vote for a policy that would invert the yield curve, but that's almost a tautology. I mean, why would you do that? The real question is, can you avoid a policy accident by uh, raising the federal funds rate too far but not realizing it? Uh, yeah, that, that could happen because we don't control the curve, as you know. We control just the Fed funds rate. And right now, twos to tens is roughly you know, 50 basis points. So this is why uh, I've said and others have said, uh, every day I'm going to be watching very carefully the, uh, the shape of the yield curve. And what the shape of the yield curve tells me is prospects for future growth, out-year growth, are sluggish. And so I think it's worth paying attention to that. But that will, that's the reason why I'm saying, let's just keep the base case for this year at three. Uh, I'm not looking to, to increase that because I've got the, the shape of the yield curve and out-year growth in the back of my mind. Well, given that, what would your outlook for rate moves in 2019 be? Are we, are we going to see a pause from the Fed? No, I, th I still think we should be gradually moving toward a neutral policy. And again, neutrals two and a half and two and three quarters, just a question of the pace. But, but that's still my overall view. Uh, we should be gradually moving to two and a half, two and three quarters, but watching these other factors as we move along that curve. We are talking with Robert Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Uh, have inflation dynamics changed when you look at what you think you need to do? I think they have. And as you know, we're at a conference here that we're hosting on technology-enabled disruption. I think one of the reasons is technology-enabled disruptions, which means 
technology replacing people, but more importantly, consumers having at their disposal computing power that literally most companies didn't have 25 years ago. The power of what consumers can now do has, sh has shifted, and so businesses have much less pricing power, and so as it relates to inflation, it means that if a business wants to increase prices, they, they really aren't as able to do it, and technology is, is uh, grinding that down, and globalization is a part of it too. So yeah, I think that's part of the reason, in my view, why the Phillips curve is flatter or more muted. Uh, I think the economy and the structure of it has changed. Well, we came out of the Great Recession with companies managing the bottom line rather than trying to grow the top line by investing. Has that changed now that the economy has picked up or are we still, because of disruption or whatever, going to see the emphasis be on cutting people and keeping wages down? Well, companies would love to grow the top line. Uh, and obviously I work with, my, with companies my entire career and that hasn't changed. They want to they grow, but uh, I think it's not easy. And so what you're seeing companies do is try to get more scale in part by merging. Uh, and that's why you see so much merger activity. It's due to disruption and lack of pricing power. And the other thing you're seeing them do is continue to invest aggressively in technology. But I, I think when you see all this merger activity, people should probably connect that with the fact lack of pricing power, businesses are getting more scale and trying to, to protect their margins. And so uh, that is having a pretty profound effect on workers. If you got a college education, all the data is showing, you, you can probably adapt to this. Not that it won't be traumatic, uh, but if you're a high school educated person or less, which is 46 million workers in this country, you're probably seeing your job disrupted or eliminated. And unless you get retrained, which is easier to say, uh, harder to do, you're likely going to see your productivity and income decline. And that's, that's the grinding and discomfort that we're seeing in the economy. All these wonderful Texas businesses, the CEOs, are, are they going to be increasing investment because of the tax cuts? Uh, from what I can tell so far, there's greater CapEx investment this year. That's the good news. The bad news is a lot of it from my discussions with CEOs is just moving from next year and the year after to now. Uh, businesses, I don't think, are going to fundamentally increase their CapEx over the medium term unless they see greater demand. And uh, because of sluggish workforce growth, sluggish out your uh, GDP growth, I think they're still in a cautious stance right now. They're focusing a lot more on costs and investing and trying to maintain margins and still see solid demand, but not breakaway demand. Uh, let me ask you something for our friends on the fixed income trading desks yeah. out there. Uh, what do you make of the drift upward in the effective federal funds rate over the last couple of months? Uh, some see a quantitative tightening at work here that will shorten the time that balance sheet normalization goes. Well, I think the market is paying attention to what the Fed is saying. We've got strong GDP growth, and so I think people are probably putting a little more weight on our forward guidance and our dot plot as to what we say we're going to do. But that's on the short end. And so you see that in the one year and the two year and six month uh, LIBOR. On the long end, 
you're seeing a drift up, but not very rapid, and that's creating this flattening. So that's what I make of it. Well, the minutes show that the Open Market Committee discussed maybe raising IOER, the top end of your right. range, by only 20 basis right. points um, to compensate. Is that necessary? Would you support that? Is that yeah. something we could look for in I, June? I, I, I would support it, and I think this is a this is a little bit of a technical matter. Uh, flow of funds matter, uh, and, and for listeners, this is about the mechanics of how we set the Fed funds rate, and I think a little bit of recalibration is not surprising and probably appropriate. Uh, you think that's likely for June? I mean, is, it, is there a general feeling that you need to, you need to I'm be? A, I'm going to stay away from that and leave those discussions for, uh, in the, it, for, <laughs> for the, it, within the FOMC what, there, and, and, uh, and you'll see what we decide uh, at, when it comes out in the minutes. But we shouldn't be surprised, in other words. It is obviously I a think live we foreshadowed it. You've seen a little foreshadowing of it. Yeah. You came to Texas from Massachusetts, and you lived for a long time in New York, two high-tax, high-regulation states. You come here. Anybody who comes here knows they talk about the success of the Texas economy being based on low regulation, low taxes. Yeah. Uh, have you become a convert? Do you think they're right? Uh, I think there's a lot of advantages to Texas. And one of the things you and I've talked a lot about, one of the things that's helped Texas over the last 15 years is migration of people and firms. 10 years ago, the population of Texas was 22 and a half million. Today, it's 28, 29. We think in the next 20, 25 years, it's going to exceed 40 million. And the reason I mention this, we don't talk about it enough in the United States. Population growth, workforce growth, is a key engine of GDP growth. Texas has got that. Uh, and this is a challenge for probably 30 to 35 states in the United States. Their population and workforce growth is flat to down. And so uh, Texas has got more latitude then to uh, collect property taxes, it's got a value-added tax. We have some taxes here that other states don't, but we don't have an income tax either at the corporate or the individual level. Uh, and you've got a very business-friendly, can-do environment. And, uh, and, so, and it's been a virtuous cycle. The more people that move here in businesses, the more other businesses want to come. So uh, Texas' prospects are very bright. Uh, I think other states can do it in a different way. With, but, but every state I talk to and every governor I talk to has got the same challenge. How do we attract workers and people and grow the workforce? That affects their investment in education, uh, underfunded pension funds, and that's why I talk about demographics so much. We are letting the population growth in this country uh, slide. We've had it before in our history. Immigration. Uh, it, it, and improving immigration. It could be skills-based, much more employer-based, but to think we're going to cut immigration and grow GDP, I think is going to create a challenge for many states in the country. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed, thank you for joining us Thanks, from, live from deep in the heart of Texas. Well, it is time now to get a preview of Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan, of course, the host this weekend on Bloomberg Radio. Listen to Face the Nation Sunday, 2 p.m. New York, Washington, D.C., and now on Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. That's Face the Nation. It's on uh, this Sunday at 2 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Margaret, always a pleasure. I have a feeling uh, it's sort of a pick-your-hotspot uh, program. You, you, <laughs> you, you get to choose which part of the world is is more unstable. What What is the, the sort of focus for you this week? 
We will be honing in on Asia, not just because of this North Korean summit being pushed off, the June 12th summit in Singapore not happening as planned, um, but also asking the question of what's China's role in this. The president has been public in his suspicion that China may be uh, the reason using their influence to slow down progress with the U.S. on the North Korean issue. We'll talk about that, um, as well as some of these trade fears with Marco Rubio, the Republican senator from Florida, who's been a critic of the administration in terms of what they're offering, or at least rhetorically offering to do uh, to help out that Chinese telecom firm, ZTE. Um, We also have Jim Clapper, who, uh, as you know, was uh, director of national intelligence under the Obama administration. He's been a critic of the president, particularly when it comes to Russia. But on the issue of North Korea, he thinks it was the right idea to meet face to face with Kim Jong Un. And he's going to talk to us about where we go next. You know, Margaret, it's interesting. Uh, the, The guest lineup is fascinating to me because it raises a question of how important is it for there to be some degree of consensus, some united front that the United States is putting out there when it negotiates trade uh, with China and with uh, the European Union. I mean, what are you expecting to hear from them on that score, given the fact that they've uh, expressed their dissent vocally amid a pretty fractured policy of the White House's? Well, uh, the White House says they've got Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, going to Beijing to have some of these talks on the issue of ZTE. They're trying to claim it's separate and apart from the broader tariffs and trade dispute. Of course, for Beijing, uh, they don't often see these things as siloed as U.S. officials would like to present them as. Um, and that's why the president has made clear his suspicion that all of it's bleeding together and influence perhaps progress on the North Korea front. Uh, Marco Rubio and a number of Republicans have had issues with the president's approach on trade, though it's very popular with some Democrats in this country who like to see the kind of protectionist measures the president's been threatening. So there is no unified message either within the Republican Party or within the Democratic one at the moment. It's kind of a state by state, industry by industry a difference of opinions here. We're also going to have um, an ally of the president, Mark Meadows, a Republican congressman from North Carolina, is going to be on the show to talk to us, uh, not just about this, but the immigration debate right now and what he's hearing from the president. Uh, Margaret, just a little bit more on Senator Marco Rubio, because on Tuesday, remember, he said that he wanted to push for what he described as a veto-proof congressional action to check the Trump administration's uh, deal to save uh, the Chinese telco company uh, ZTE. Then the Senate Banking Committee approved an amendment from Senator Chris Van Hollen of uh, Maryland Democrat to limit the president's ability to remove sanctions uh, from the Chinese telco. Uh, Is this demonstrating that the president's actions are going to be limited, perhaps not just on China trade? Well, certainly um, there are those in Congress who would like to try to limit the president's actions on this. Yes. Uh, Mark Warner, the uh, former telecom CEO, who's the current Democratic senator from Virginia, was really passionate about it when I spoke to him last week, that this is a national security issue and Congress is very concerned about what the president might even be considering doing here. Of course, the question is with the president, if if the public posture is actually reflected in what they're considering doing policy-wise, and that's not clear. And just uh, finally, uh, James Clapper, uh, of course, uh, has 
been back and forth with his comments about the president, but he said he did not say that Donald Trump uh, keeps saying what he said. What is this about? Right. They, this is like a rhetorical whiplash. Yes, well, James Clapper, of course, was the director of national intelligence uh, during the election and saw firsthand. He's written in this new book details about what they were seeing behind the scenes uh, with Russian election meddling. What he has said uh, was trying and that he got criticized by the president for was his uh, assessment here in terms of how to refer to what the president is calling a spy within his campaign, but which uh, others would just simply call someone who was an informant to the FBI, um, someone who'd been in contact both with FBI officials and the Trump campaign uh, on the issue of election meddling. The president says he, that, that Clapper defended his point of view in some ways by admitting there was a right. spy. Clapper said, no, no, I was talking about trying to spy on the Russians and what the Russians were doing. Right. This is a war of words, but it's really just being put in the context of partisan politics. All right. Well, we're going to be listening. Thank you very much, Margaret Brennan. You can hear Margaret Brennan this weekend on Bloomberg Radio. Listen to Face the Nation Sunday, 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and now Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. That's Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.